leftovers. Or the DMV. Or house cleaning. Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like him. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty alongside my co-host, Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bougay, and this week we're bringing you part two of our discussion on the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals between the Indiana Pacers and the Chicago Bulls. If you missed part one from last week, I urge you to to check that out first. But without further ado, here's part two. So so let's move on to game four then. And uh, again, Kukoc continues to start for for Chicago. But this game, I think, uh, you know, this is really where Rick Smith started to impose his will and, and his presence in the series he scored or assisted on the Pacers' first seven points. He had a hook shot across the lane. He had an offensive rebound and put back. He also drew a double team and, and kicked it to Mark Jackson. I, I found it funny at times, you know, especially when you had Pippen guarding Mark Jackson and, and the Pacers went to a post-up. Uh, Pippen just absolutely ignored Mark Jackson and, uh, you know, was, was willing to let him fire wide open shot after wide open shot off of double teams. Oh, yeah. No, it was, Spitz was, uh, he, he busted out in a big way this one, especially since still the top two scorers alongside Miller for the first three. He wasn't, you know, like horrible, but this one he led the way big time. Um, was really just giving uh, Longley and, 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 and others the business just around the basket. And again, another guy I, I remember being good, but just like he was a really solid offensive player. Maybe defensively didn't give you much, um, just not really, aside from being a big body in the lane. Not really having a foot speed or anything there, but polished um, offensively. Had a nice jumper up to like 17, 18 feet. Um, he was just a, a really, really solid player. And he came through in a big way with, what, 26 in the game, in this game? Fuck. Like, in totality, he was just an engine for them. And, and a way that, especially with Miller playing in a lot of pain for this one, some of the Pacers could kind of play through. 
Yeah, and he, he drew two fouls on Luke Longley in the first quarter. And then, you know, again, the, the Pacers loved that matchup when uh, Weddington came into the game and, and, and they really attacked Smiths. But Weddington, you know, brought something on the other end. And, you know, Smiths at 7-3 liked to, to stand around the basket. And, and Weddington was a, was a better mid-range shooter than Longley. So he provided that and, and maybe punished Smiths a little bit for, for standing around the hoop. But, yeah, Smiths obviously doing really well in this game. And then, you know, Michael Jordan suffers a, uh, a cut right around his right eye in the early portion of this one and, and actually had to sit out for a bit. I believe it was on a, a, a play where Smiths actually got a clean block, but then on the follow-through drilled, drilled uh, Jordan right, uh, right around the uh, right eyebrow area. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I remember seeing the play, I remember in, in, in exact just like that, um, but I imagine, like, again, on that contact there and, and seeing him with that patch over his eye, it did, I don't want to say it, it hampered him, but it was, it was, it was, not, it wasn't great. I mean, anytime you get an eye and get hammered, it's bad. But you're right, clean block and then the follow through, unfortunately. I know a thing or two about that. It kind of negates how good it looked when you, you clobber the guy afterwards. Yeah. Um, the, uh, a couple of, uh, a couple of officiating things I, I had written in my notes for game four. <laughs> Uh, Rodman right at the uh, right at the end of the first quarter with 1.7 left got away with an offensive goaltending where he redirected a, a Jordan shot that was clearly above the cylinder but was offline a little bit uh, and uh, that put the Bulls up three right at the end of the uh, of the period and then later Michael Jordan was called for an offensive foul for quote unquote lowering his shoulder onto Travis Best in transition. But uh, it really was was uh, was not much. It was almost like uh, you know there there was no sort of extension with the off arm like you see a lot in in today's game, uh, and and best obviously a lot smaller, not nearly as strong as Jordan. So any sort of bump is going to send him flying. But I, I watched that play and I'm just like, there's there's no way that's being called in uh, in 2020. Oh no, and I think uh, we we've had a couple series now where the refs played a factor. Um, where we had games we looked and we're like, what are they doing or why they do this or whatever the case may be. Um, in the series that both teams complained about the referees throughout the course of the series, at least up through this point, looking like actually having watched the games and then seeing the numbers, it didn't look super bad on either side. Right. I thought the refs did a, a pretty good job for both of them. This game was the first one where, obviously, it's a big play later on, but it seemed like the refs were just kind of like looking the other way for certain things or, or just kind of leaving their, uh, their eyes at the door in certain um, plays where it's like, okay, clearly that wasn't what you called. The offensive goaltender was one. I was definitely a lot more in tune with you on that Jordan post-off where it was clearly okay, but a smaller dude, so it looked worse. But even then, look at the replay. He was just doing his natural motion. Like, you don't punish someone for that, you know? Um, at least in a way where best wasn't even, like, set or anything. It was just a normal bang-bang you know, play. We just saw two people knock each other out. We just talked about a few games ago. And now it's like, oh, no, clearly off. You know, it was just a lot more of those plays that were Questionable at best, it's just horrible at worst. Yeah, and with uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into the the closing stages of this game. I think this was the probably the worst officiated game of the series. But but I agree with you for the most part that overall they they did a solid job and and they were consistent in terms of allowing the physicality on both ends of the floor. Uh, but uh, yeah, one of the things that was interesting again because Miller still obviously hobbled. Not uh, not a hundred percent, nowhere close. Uh, the 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 Pacers didn't seem really comfortable with either Miller or Mullen 
guarding Jordan, and at times, uh, it, they they even had Travis Best on him during this game four, and and Jordan really uh, really made him pay, and and also I think you know this is where we started to see Steve Kerr play a little bit. And they, they tried to make that work by having Jordan actually the one defending Travis Best. Yeah, again, you're right. The cross-matching here was also kind of weird because on either of those matchups, I don't think either is necessarily ideal. Or just because Jordan, the burden he was having on the one end, but also Best on Jordan in general just wasn't good. Maybe they were hoping to bait Jordan with some fouls or get the referees there. It wasn't like Best was that great a defender that you were giving some sort of advantage by putting on Jordan. By just by being smaller or anything, oh, he gives up inches and, and, and pounds, but he can get under Jordan's skin. That, that ne- doesn't necessarily what was happening. It was just a weird kind of cross-match situation for both of them. And I think maybe fatigue has something to do with it, just in terms of not only just match up to Miller, obviously not do it, but also um, on the Bulls' side, we're not hiding Jordan, but using Jordan for maximum damage. Right, and yeah, that shows you even in 98 the kind of defensive versatility that MJ still had that he could capably guard a point guard and a quick point guard at that at this stage of his career at 34 years of age um, is, is really impressive. And uh, one, one highlight I, I had to mention, and I actually tweeted this out, but uh, Luke Longley, you know, a guy that, uh, a, a guy that uh, you know wasn't wasn't a great player. I would say he was pretty average at just about everything. But you know, was capable of hitting a a fifteen footer. Had some post moves if you if you had a mismatch, and and uh, you know was an okay defensive player. But he hit a straight up sky hook uh, in this ball game, and uh, yeah, that was one where I was like, oh, I thought uh, I thought they they said nobody shot the sky hook after Kareem retired. Oh, yeah, Longley in general, offensively, I don't want to say underrated, but he had a nice little set. That's kind of, I watched that. When you tweet, I saw that. That's cool. And I looked at the game, I was like, like in the game, I was sitting there going, watch it. Like, wow, that was, that was legit. Like, through and through the motion, like, this guy was still alive. But also, for a big guy, he was able to stretch out, at least um, as far as most centers in the NBA stretched out. Um, for the Bulls, just uh, not only just being able to space it up to, like, what's it? 15 feet, but also just being able to hit from the corners and such in a way that having a big man, he was not stretching it out to like the deep, you know, foul line extended area or definitely not to three. Having someone that was that big, that was also just not uh, a lumbering big that was clogging the line, that kind of give the Bulls some room to use when they need it. By no means were they going to Longley um, for any kind of sort of consistent bucket, but having someone who you kind of pass the ball out to as like a release valve off a pick and roll or something, um, was solid, and Longley had some moves. He was one of those guys who just kind of fit in perfectly for this team, and not for lack of talent. I think he was a decent starting center for his time, but just being quite skilled. Yeah, not a bad passer from the elbows. I, I noted a few uh, nice nice little backdoor passes he had in the series. But, uh, yeah, um, you know, speaking of the trends that we had seen in the first three games with the road team being up at half, again, that was the case of, in this game four with Chicago up 54-48. The Bulls also go on a 4-0 run to start the third quarter to go up 10. And at this point, you know, you're, you're, you've got to be worried. Larry Bird immediately calls timeout just about a minute into the quarter. But, uh, you know, despite the fact that the Pacers were able to, to win that game three and, and make it a 2-1 series, this is still really a, a must win for them. And being down ten in the third quarter, not looking great for their chances of uh, avoiding going down three one. Oh yeah, it really wasn't. Um, and I think it was trying the big. 
you had for the Pacers quality um, bench production, I would like to say, but at the same time, you, you, you could definitely feel not the absence of Miller. I just feel like that, okay, yes, not the physical absence of Miller. He was definitely in the game. I think he played, what, 40-something minutes? Um, 42 minutes in this game, which is crazy on that ankle. But they're mostly ineffective minutes because he was so out of it. I mean, and we're going to talk about this later, but the only field goal that he attempted in the game's final 18 minutes was the one that we'll probably spend a little bit of time discussing. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, he wasn't he wasn't, he wasn't, wasn't there. As a decoy, I'd like to say he was effective, but because he was so obviously hampered from a physical standpoint, it wasn't taking that much excessive effort to kind of stay with him. He could barely move, it felt like. You know what I mean? He was literally hopping around. And so I felt like the pace, aside from Smith, um, you had moments where they kind of bogged down, and yeah, the Bulls had some measure or some semblance of control where it was like, oh, wait a second, like, the pace is going to have to climb out of a hole again. And this time, you know, how are they going to be able to do it? Um, just in terms of having that 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 offensive focal point. It turned out again. You know, it was been, like we mentioned again, the straight and thin numbers for this Pacers team. Yeah, at the end of the third quarter, the Bulls were up 77-69, but Smiths kept him in it. He had 13 points in the quarter and 23 overall at the end of three so really he was the the one guy I think Mark, Mark Jackson had some moments uh, dealing with the finally taking advantage of some of that full court pressure that Scottie Pippen was showing him he finally started being a little bit more aggressive and attacking the basket he had a nice lob pass as well to to Dale Davis um, they, they mentioned that Mark Jackson was one of the best lob passers in the NBA, but uh, that was, uh, to be honest, the only lob pass I saw him convert in the entire series. But yeah, you know, but Chris Mullen as well, not really contributing in this one. He was just one of seven at the end of three, and at 34 again with without the athleticism, you know, in, back in his. Uh, uh, days with with Golden State and on the Dream Team, he was you know able to create his shot pretty well in terms of um, you know going off the dribble and attacking. He had some quickness, but he had he had no first step uh, at this point, and uh, he couldn't create any space against any of the Bulls guys. So really, it was uh, the likes of Rick Smiths that was keeping the Pacers alive in this one, and then it was the bench again coming through, and Jalen Rose in particular had back-to-back threes to start the fourth and, uh, you know, keep the keep the Pacers afloat. Yeah, no, I, again, I want to touch just real quick, like you were talking about, um, yeah, this was like, I mean, what's funny is that he would continue until 2001, so he gave you another three seasons after this, but this was like pretty much the end for him here, you know what I mean? Like, it was, it was this was the last one, well, no, he had one more season after this where he scored in double digits, and after that he faded, he was gone and fast, but his 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 style at this point, having the loss of athleticism and also you know, having a superior one in Jordan on him, it was very uh, prevalent that he just did not have the juice, and um, it was unfortunate because this was one where they kind of really needed, and there was there was none in supply for him. I remember looking back and going because I didn't follow. All I remember from Chris Mullen watching was the run TNC, um, obviously like you said the Dream Team, and didn't really follow a whole lot of any you know later Golden State. Um, games from him, like 96 or 97 and aside from this series didn't really watch him on the Pacers um, at that point either no he I watched him a little bit he played in the 2000 finals but I for, kind of forgot about this one and yeah he was at a stage of his career he even I did a little background research he even said that you know for Golden State he at the time that got traded from Golden State to Indiana 
he knew that they were kind of on a rebuild. And he said, listen, I have no problem being part of a rebuild um, just as long as you guys are going to trade me. But they, he, they could, he couldn't get any promises that they weren't going to try to move him. And so he's like, okay, well, Indiana has some pieces that, you know, around my age. But looking at it, it was like, wow, like all of that, the way he played, you know, kind of going up to this point, being a menace offensively, racking up multiple 25-plus point seasons and, you know, being a terror in the passing lanes, it, it, it was gone. It was gone. Yeah, he he really was just purely a, a spot up shooter and a very good one at that. But uh, again, with the uh, with the with the Bulls perimeter defense, they were able to largely shut him down. An- another thing that I noticed in this game four that uh, th- that is a bit of a criticism for Phil Jackson, but the Bulls up eighty three seventy seven. They're up six. You know, despite the fact that Jalen Rose hit a couple of threes, Steve Kerr and Ku coach also uh, had had answers from downtown so the Bulls still had a two possession lead and uh, Jordan played the entire third quarter and came back with 9.30 left to go in the ball game and that's one of those situations where I understand that you don't want to concede the lead and uh, Jordan's your best player but at the same time can you give a 34-year-old more than two and a half minutes of rest in a, a crucial game especially when your team has a little cushion at the moment? Yeah, that was one where it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Where it's okay, you have a moment, get your guy a blow because you can afford to do that down the stretch here. And who knows, it may come back again as these games have been going where you may need it. You know, the fatigue was a big factor. You have two older teams playing heavy minutes. I mean, this was a lot. And that was one part I didn't, I, I looked at it in retrospect. At the time, I wasn't focused on the rotation as much, but looking back, I was like, well, you know, if there was a little more juice in this guy's legs, or if they didn't have to go to this guy, you know, too much, maybe that would have been better. It's almost like the reverse of having someone having your bench in too long after they do like a strong comeback. In the sense where it's like, okay, great, they got you back to this point. Now you bring your starters back in the sustain. And the balancing act that is that time where you don't want to ruin the flow. But on the same one as well, you know, it, it's 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 a, it's an issue as far as how how much is how much is too much for you guys. It's, if it's a safe cushion for you, fine. You spell the moments when you can. Um, that way they don't fade as end up happening. And again, not to understate the pace of strong performance, but uh, fatigue fatigue played on that a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, Smith's again continuing to, uh, to keep the Pacers in it. He drew the fifth foul on Longley, converting a three-point play. Uh, the, the score was Chicago 85, Indiana 80 with 6.39 left. Then Longley, uh, a couple of minutes later, just pushes Reggie Miller on an off-balls action and uh, fouled out, and uh, the, the Pacers were in the bonus as well, and Miller knocks down the free throws, makes it a, a two-point game, and it really was kind of a, a back-and-forth affair uh, down the stretch of this one. This was one of the, you know, probably aside from Game 7, my, my favorite game in this series, but uh, there was a possession where the Pacers just had a had beautiful offensive basketball. Reggie Miller uh, calls for a ball screen on the right-hand side. He uh, he sees Ron Harper sort of anticipate the, the screen, and he drives left, go, rejects the screen, draws the help from MJ, kicks it to Travis Best. Best is on the wing. He fakes MJ at the three-point line, drives in. Scotty Pippen then helps. You can also see this is uh, how good the Bulls' defense is as well. 
he finally kicks it to uh, then Best kicks it to McKee and he knocks in a go ahead three to put the Pacers up one with four minutes left and and that capped an eleven to two run for the Pacers. And honestly, that was a solid just go around in general because you described it perfectly. Each move had like an equal reaction from the Bulls. The penetration, the kickouts, rotating the ball. And literally their defense was on a string, it felt like. Rotation here, tip and set up here, boom. But the Pacers were able to find that hole where it finally found its way to McKee. And it just felt, just given the rhythm of the game, which sounds so weird to describe, that he was going to knock it down. Yeah, absolutely. And McKee was... McKee was crucial down the stretch of this game defensively. This was the big stretch where they, um, you know, put him on on Michael Jordan, and and Jordan kind of struggled down the stretch. Although I noted about three or four jumpers for him in the last, uh, you know, in the last quarter of this game four that went in and out. It was just kind of an unfortunate thing where the shots were were good. He was in rhythm. They, uh, you know, he he shot him with confidence, and and yeah, they were halfway down and just rattled out. Uh, the the Pacers uh, staff maybe at halftime tightened the rims a little bit, uh, but uh, yeah the um, the the game was was back and forth. Kukoc hit a a clutch jumper in the corner with uh, under three minutes left to put the Bulls up one. Then uh, Travis Best was also pretty clutch down the stretch. He hit a three pointer, and uh, the the issue though was on on this play. Best hit a three to put the Pacers up one. But it shouldn't have been counted as a three. And Phil Jackson actually even pointed to the officials and said, hey, his foot was on the line. But uh, at, at this time in the NBA, they, they didn't go back and review those decisions. So it, it stayed as a three-point shot. Yeah, and that was another one that, again, the rest were kind of on their, uh, you know, there's, there's some fallacy here. And the, the rest had more than a few this game. And that was one of them where, you know, they couldn't, like, you know, there was the time they didn't look back on those. But that was one that it was a deep, deep two, but it wasn't a three. Yeah, and uh, the Bulls were on the short end of the whistle again. A, a few possessions later, Scottie Pippen on a post-up with, with Chicago down two, has the ball poked away, and in the scramble for the possession, it seems very clear that Travis Best dove and, and poked the ball out of bounds, but they gave it to the Pacers, so uh, you know a, a swing of possessions there under three minutes is, is pretty crucial. Uh, and despite that, though, the Bulls just kept kept hanging in there, playing. Jordan had a uh, a great shot turned into pass. You know, I mentioned his uh, ability to jump in the air and, and change his mind at the last second. But he hit Kukoc in the corner for a three. The Bulls retake uh, the lead at 92-91 with 142 left. Um, and it really did look like the Bulls were maybe going to pull this out because... Uh, Kukoc has a great defensive possession guarding Smits. He fronts and denies the post, and and uh, it leads to kind of a stagnant possession and uh, a turnover. And then MJ, you know, looks like he's going to ice this game. He hits a clutch isolation jumper over McKee. Bulls are up three with 52 seconds left. And at this point, yeah, it uh, it doesn't look good for Indiana. No, uh, at this point, the temp of the control was all Chicago's way. Um, Pacers, you're right, they'd been riding Smiths throughout, but it was getting down to a point where it was, it was getting tough. Again, uh, a common theme for the Pacers, or just in general, was consistently. They had, their bench was strong. Um, I think at this point, did you have, I forgot when, the, I guess that was a bigger factor for game five, but I think the altercation at this point already occurred between um, Reggie and, and uh, Ron Harper. Oh yeah, that was uh, a play where 
Reggie, or actually no, I think it's a little bit later. Yeah, it was it was a dirty play from from Harper where Reggie was uh, um, trying to get the ball inbounds. Harper deflects it, and Harper's falling out of bounds. And yeah, he pulls Reggie into the crowd, pulls his arm, and and Reggie retaliated. Fortunately, uh, you know nothing much happened. Although I, I do believe Jalen Rose ended up getting he was suspended for Game Five because of this, right? Yes, and I was getting mixed up on the games. I knew I played uh, a factor later, but not for this particular game here. So I thought I'd point that out since it did happen on this one. It played a factor later, although that one was just rough. But um, by this point, the Pacers offensively had kind of bogged down again. You know, ebbs and flows. Um, Smith had really carried them up to a point. Um, and but you you said he had twenty three up through um, he had twenty three up through the first three quarters. And then he finished 26, so the fourth quarter wasn't really his, his shining time there. And getting points from other ways was hard, especially, like you said, with the time they're going down where it was. It was it was, it was was a wonder how was Indiana going to pull out a game that they needed. It was, at this point, their biggest game of the season. Yeah, and you talk about the, the, the Pacers' offense getting a little stagnant. with Down three with uh, 52 seconds left, they have a possession, and it's a lot of Travis Best, who's in the game in the in the final moments instead of Jackson, which was a running theme throughout the series. Um, but uh, he's kind of dribbling the ball, and, and that's one of the issues with having Reggie Miller as your main offensive hub is, you know, he's running around trying to get open, but on this possession, you know, the, the Bulls defend it well, nothing materializes, and then all of a sudden you've got seven or eight seconds left on the shot clock, and you haven't done anything as an offense. But uh, fortunately, I think one of the reasons why Bird liked best down the stretch of these games is he could just, you know, take it and drive then uh, if the shot clock was winding down and, and, and he makes a huge play, finishing off the glass to make it a one-point game with 33.5 seconds left. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about the, the, the closing moments of this game but Jordan didn't even really get an opportunity to ice this game away because on the ensuing possession, uh, Dennis Rodman is called for a uh, for a moving screen to give the ball back to Indiana down one. Yeah, that was and that was a big one as well. That turned it over. It wasn't even a chance for, like you said, Jordan to take control on the spot where normally he would. That would be his moment, you know. And everyone knows this, but because that call, which I was surprised was called, even though like it was it was good was one that happened at the time. I don't even know why it was there, but it was like, oh, like, they're, they're doing it, you know? And forget home cooking, just, I, that, there's certain moments where you don't expect certain calls to be given, you know, and with Jordan, every time I think of a call not given, well, like, if you're watching The Last Dance, by the time this is up, you'll know uh, that Jazz series, see Game 6. But going back to what I was saying, um, it was just one that was, it was, it was, it was definitely necessary, but it negated having Jordan a chance to kind of, you know, put them in his own, um, put his own stamp on it during a moment where he would normally do something. Yeah, and uh, the so the Bulls having to rely on their defense, and they have a great defensive possession. Indiana gets it. Pippen helps off of Derek McKee on uh, on a Travis Best drive, and then MJ, who is guarding Best, then recovers out to McKee on the pass, and he blocks the shot out of bounds. And the Pacers then are inbounding it in the in the dead corner. You know, probably the worst spot you want to to inbound the basketball. And that's where Harper deflects the pass and, you know, the, the ensuing chaos happens on the sideline near the benches. Um, and, and, yeah, which led to 
to Jalen Rose being suspended for for that game five. So on the deflection by Harper, it actually ends up in Pippen's hands, who who then gets fouled. So the Bulls, with a great defensive possession, back to back times to to uh, get the stop, get Pippen to the free throw line, but uh, he uh, he misses both free throws. And the ball is knocked out of bounds, and initially the refs call it a jump ball, but then they, uh, I, I believe, correctly give it to the Pacers with 2.9 left. The Pacers call timeout, so they advance the basketball, and this is the uh, the famous play that I'm sure everyone listening has, has seen where Reggie Miller, coming off screening action, gets switched onto by Jordan, Pushes with pushes him off with two hands, catches the ball on the right wing with Jordan trailing him. Apparently, Jordan was uh, you you see in the replay, Jordan whispers something to him from behind, but Reggie, cool and confident, knocks it down with 0.7 left to put the Pacers up two, and that leads to a timeout for Chicago. They advance the basketball, and the play that I had not known that had happened because you know the Reggie Miller shot gets all of the coverage, but. Jordan very nearly won the game for Chicago. Uh, Tony Kukoc inbounding it, makes a great little lofted pass as uh, Derek McKee was denying Jordan. Jordan somehow gets around him, eerily reminiscent of the of, uh, of the defensive pressure that he got around versus Cleveland in, in, in 89 when he hit the shot. But he catches the ball on the move, going towards the three-point line on the left wing, puts it up, has to actually double clutch because McKee at 6'10", contests it from behind with his length, and it goes off the backboard, hits the rim, rattles in and out, and again, I had mentioned throughout the fourth quarter, it was three or four shots that went in and out for him, and it included the shot that that would have put the game away and probably the series away, but it just another Another display of Jordan's amazing clutch performance, even when he misses the final shot. I was gonna say you 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 nailed the head like with just how perfect that last shot came because I looked down and I I didn't even remember that that was out of my memory. I remember that being the game. Remember it's a shot. I thought there was a last second gasp. Like your 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 memory of that game kind of just goes up to the Miller shot and then it just ends. That's the game. So seeing that was like oh snap, and it reminded me. Just how many big shots where the Bulls have lost that Jordan's jumper spins in and out. Literally spins in and out. He had one, I remember, in 91, game one against the Lakers happened. Um, they had a game, um, it was a triple overtime game against the Celtics, I think the same season, in and out, 91. And then there was a couple like games, I don't know how I happen to watch games where he has a last second shot and it just misses. And again, that's a testament how clutch you are. It's not like he's breaking these things or, or airballing. They are in and then they are out. And that shot, you could see both Pippen and George just spare reaction because the way he shot it, I thought it was going to be off by a lot. Just the way that he had to pump thing in and kind of fling it. And it was almost perfect. Hard off the glass, rattled it in and spun right out. And I was like, jeez. Like, just even knowing, you know, the results of this game, I did not remember how close that miss was to going in and making all of uh, Miller's hard work, offensive fouls, and clutch three-point shooting null and void. Yeah, uh, so the Pacers able to uh, to tie it two games to two, and again continuing the trend of the team at home being down at the half, but then coming through and, and pulling it out. And uh, again, Reggie Miller not doing much for the vast majority of the second half of this basketball game, but hits the the the, the crucial shot to to win it. 
Um, game five, we don't need to talk about this too much. I mean, obviously the, the Pacers lost Jalen Rose for this one. He was a key bench contributor in both their game three and four wins. The Bulls end up uh, taking this one 106-87. Do you have any just uh, quick thoughts on, on that game before we move to game six? Oh, yeah, just a few. I mean, notes-wise, uh, you said the Pacers were horrible. They had a team record playoff low, 23 field goals. They shot that at 34% clip. They missed 18 straight shots over a stretch of 14 minutes. Um, they had just 32 points at halftime. Um, they chilled by as many as 33 points in the second half. And then they managed to put together some consecutive baskets just twice in the game's first three quarters. So they just straight up laid an egg. Yeah, it was it was not good. And obviously Miller's still, still pretty hobbled. And uh, that continued even into Game 6. The Pacers end up pulling out a, another tight affair at home, winning 92-89. Um, Miller shoots just 2 of 13 in this one. But, uh, you know, they get really great production. Again, you know, we talked about Smith's performance in Game 4, keeping them alive, allowing them to to pull that one out. But Game 6, even more so, Smith's with 25 points on 11 of 12 from the field. The Bulls just had no answers for him on the block. And, uh, you know, at 7-3, when, when he's hitting that fadeaway, there's there's really no answer. And again, in, in Game 6, it was another situation where Mark Jackson starts, but Travis Best plays down the stretch, and he made a, a couple of, uh, of crucial plays, and including a, a bucket to help the Pacers pull out the, the Game 6 win and extend it to a series-deciding Game 7 in Chicago. Oh, yeah. He was a, kind of the unconcerned hero, getting that run in crunch time. Um, you already mentioned that, running one-hander to break the tie, get those winning free throws, and then he drew a foul on Jordan with 8.8 seconds left. That was big as well. Um, and then Smiths, again, monstrous. Uh, the, the number, I looked it up, He uh, game six was the 27th time that Smiths had led the Pacers in scoring. In 1998, and they were 23 and four in those games that he led them. Um, and Luke Longley, oh wow, he put it really well. Yeah, that was pretty huge. I didn't even realize that, but Luke Longley had put it um, pretty cleanly. That listen, when 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 Rick scores, they win, and that's just what they did. He was 11 of 12 from the field there. And another big guy who came out um, and, and and again strengthened numbers again for the Pacers was Dale Davis, who uh, had 19 points and eight rebounds. So you had that production from other players. When you weren't getting, you weren't getting production from Miller. I mean, he was obviously still hampered. Two for thirteen. Dale Davis steps up. Rick Smith plays even better, and Travis Best comes through in the clutch. And um, it was it was crazy, like you said, for the Bulls. Jordan scored thirty five, but for the first time since nineteen ninety two, a team had pushed him to a game seven, which was crazy to think about. Because the Bulls aren't used to these challenges, I don't think. <laughs> Absolutely, and yeah, you know, when you when you talk about a team being up 2-0, even just to get it to a Game 7, the other team has to win 3 of 4. So the Pacers certainly had all of the momentum heading into Game 7 in Chicago. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's let's move into this game. This game was, was a heck of a lot of fun. And one of the first notes that I had watching Game 7 was that Reggie Miller immediately looked much, much healthier than he had throughout, uh, you know, between games three and six when he was hobbled. He was moving well. He was able to, you know, curl around screens. And unlike before, when he jumped off, it looked like he had no lift. He was actually exploding, getting all the way to the hoop. He had a couple of finishes early on. Um, But, uh, yeah, that was one thing that was notable right away is, oh, this looks like the Reggie Miller that uh, we all know and love. Oh, yeah, he was back. I think the whole team, the Pacers, again, I think just by virtue of having a veteran team and having a coach and Larry Bird who had literally been through it all, they came out just jacked up, ready to play. 
seven, they they were ready. I mean, and it was right there for taking. I think they felt it. I think they wanted to, to come out with the punch that they were hoping would knock Chicago out, even knowing that Chicago would rally back a little bit. But you're right. Like, just I, I, I look at that and I look at the energy that Miller had, that maybe the rest of just the way he was ready to play. But also all those paces were like, okay, this is it right here. Yeah, and they, they were having a lot of success on post-ups. Dale Davis was scoring at will. They were basically attacking whoever, again, Tony Kukoc was guarding. Um, you know, again, the, that's the decision that Phil Jackson made is to go more offensive with Kukoc, and, and the Pacers really made them pay for that in the first quarter. Uh, Smith's got off to a good start. Even Mullen was able to score on a drive, which was one of only probably two or three uh, buckets that he got that weren't standstill jumpers throughout the series. But uh, he drove and was able to take advantage of the fact that Tony Kukoc was was fronting the post and was out of help position, so he had a clear lane to the bucket and scored. And, uh, yeah, they um, they were they were consistently scoring with Dale Davis. You mentioned he, he started to show up offensively in Game 6 and uh, was, was really showing up in Game 7. Uh, he also did a pretty good job even passing it out. Uh, hit hit Mark Jackson on another three on a on a double from from Pippen again Pippen completely ignoring Jackson on a lot of those post up plays uh, and uh, yeah it was it was pretty evident that the Pacers were were the more confident team to start this ball game but then as uh, as things started to progress and the Bulls started to get back into the ball game it became very obvious that uh, especially from a rebounding perspective. The Bulls were the team that uh, were, were giving maximum effort, and the Pacers were, were lacking a little bit. Oh, yeah, which was crazy, again, with the Pacers having such big bodies, um, not just on paper, but just in general, over the Bulls. It, you're right, the game turned to the glass, and the Bulls' advantage became apparent there. Um, I think, what, they, they, were, they ended up, I think, scoring 24 points on 22 offensive rebounds, where the Pacers only had three points on four rebounds. Like, um, it, it was pretty crazy just in terms of how the efforts there, and you have to want it more, and you get all these same type of um, cliches of the drive, and, and I, I think that's selling the Pacers short because they definitely had the energy and the effort there. But on the boards, you have to come at it and be relentless. And the Bulls were just throwing themselves at the glass again and again. It wasn't like exactly a pretty game, but it was one where at the end, going, I mean, early going down the stretch, the Bulls were able to do the kind of moves and get there and get the rebounds to kind of suck the life out of the game, especially, you know, coming to the finish, I don't want to jump ahead of there, but just in general, yeah, the bull, the Pacers were kind of giving them up, and these are from not just like Longley or, or Rodman, of course, but Pippen and Jordan were getting the act and really racking them up. Yeah, and, and, and I think with, with Game 7s in particular, you have these you have these weird plays where, I don't know if it's just nerves or the intensity of the moment, but uh, just plays that uh, you go, oh wow, that. That uh, that's unusual, you know. I remember in in the 2016 finals with the with the Cavs and Warriors, there are plays where uh, Steph gets in the passing lane and and the ball goes right through his hands and, and ends up in LeBron's hands and he finishes with a dunk. It's uh, just some some random stuff. And there was there was stuff in this game as well where Reggie Miller just drops an inbound pass um, and uh, it goes out of bounds. Dale Davis. Uh, snagged a defensive rebound but then just has it stripped which leads to some Scottie Pippen free throws I remember a play in the again to, to jump ahead just for a second we'll come back but um there there was a, a a rebound that Reggie Miller grabbed it was about as easy of a defensive rebound as you could imagine but he just bobbles it 
and uh, Pippin then picks it up. But a lot of just weird stuff going on, especially in that first quarter that's keeping Chicago in the ballgame. But despite that, the, the Pacers' offense looking really good. Reggie Miller, you know, had a back cut for a two. He also hit a three right in Michael Jordan's face from a couple feet beyond the line. And the Pacers were, you know, still up 27-17 with, with 38 seconds left to go in that first quarter. Yeah, and it was balanced. You said it. Reggie Miller had that big three. He had seven. Dale Davis had six. Mark Jackson, six. Um, um, Rick Smith had four. Um, and even Chris Mullen got, got a bucket that we talked about that layup. And it is in regards to, in, in, in um, comparison to the Bulls, who were kind of struggling from the field. Pippen had nine to lead the Bulls in that first quarter, but was two of seven. Jordan was one of five. Kukoc one of four. And then Ron Harper was the only one to convert a bucket for the Bulls in that first quarter. So you're right. The Bulls were spaced. They were, again, team basketball. Everyone getting their hands um, involved on the offensive end. They were playing defense and, and, and forcing the Bulls into some sloppy play. And offensively, this is something that was a current theme for the Bulls, um, at least this Game 7. Offensively, it was hard for them to get on track. Right, and they, you know, really the only way they were scoring was just getting second shot opportunities and, and forcing the issue inside and getting into the bonus and, and, and uh, not converting free throws at a high rate, but just getting a ton of free throws. Both teams shot a lot at the line, but uh, not a, a good percentage for either group. Um, you know, the, the other issue, though, you know, you talk about the Pacers. They had, some, they had a lot of success in Game 6 on the post. They had great success in that first quarter of Game 7 posting up, but then I felt like they started to rely on that a little bit too much and, and things got a little stagnant. Antonio Davis came in and, and seemed to struggle posting up and, and scoring effectively, and the Bulls really started to uh, to lock the Pacers down. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, the tide definitely started to turn later on as the offense and the same movement. I mean, mind you, you were still getting some production there, but it was really starting to become apparent that, okay, this game is taking on a different tenure, uh, a tenure, t- a different tempo, um, and how the game is going to be dictated. The first one was, okay, the Pacers are being free, everything's flowing around, and now you're starting to see the blueprint of what would be necessary to win this game, and the extra grit and determination the Bulls had to compensate for their lack of accuracy from the field, and the Pacers maybe not as much bringing that to the table. Um, and you're right, in that second quarter, yeah, it, just, it wasn't working out. Antonio Davis, in general, you had more minutes for, uh, for other guys. I mean, Jalen Rose and um, Travis Best was starting to get in some action more. But offensively, it was really Reggie Miller in the second that was helping the Pacers out. And you can see the tide starting to turn for Chicago as they kind of not only throttled Indiana from the field, but also put in um, their best quarter uh, of, the, of this game. Yeah, Seriously. and, you know, there, there was more just some fortunate breaks for the Bulls. There was a play where Michael Jordan was guarded by Miller. He spun into the paint. Miller did a really good job, strips him, but the ball kind of just bouncing around. MJ somehow just finds it and then draws a foul and ended up being actually Rick Smith's third personal. So uh, so not only just the unfortunate situation where the ball just kind of bounced the Bulls' way, but then ended up uh, being a, uh, a big foul on one of the Pacers' key players. And then, you know, stuff like Jordan missing a second free throw and then getting his own miss on the free throw line. There were multiple moments of of missed free throws where the Bulls were able to get rebounds. Steve Kerr got another uh, another offensive rebound in that first half and, and got fouled and, and the Bulls were in the bonus. So a lot of uh, a lot of plays there where you're just thinking, man, the, the Pacers are not catching any of these breaks. They're not getting any of these 50-50 balls, and yet they're still they're still right in this basketball game. And that was a testament, one, to just the, the play they were being, being able to bring to the table, and two, you're right, how 
Mitchell was not coming for Indiana, and um, it, it just wasn't happening. I mean, it was it was something else. Was looking back and 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 not only just seeing the numbers, but seeing the game and going, "Wow, you're right." A couple moves here and there, and you know maybe it bounces differently. And even so, the Pacers are right in this one. This one was definitely more nip and tuck throughout. In response, to that big uh, second half swim from Chicago, it's still what a three point game at half. Right, and yeah, we had uh, we had a run from MJ at the, in the closing stages of the second quarter. He scored six straight to put the Bulls up seven, but then Miller hits back-to-back threes to cut the game to one, and then uh, Jordan found uh, Scott Burrell on another one of his jumping shot, then pass moves, uh, and uh, Burrell scored at the buzzer to, to put the Bulls up 48-45 at halftime. So again, you know, even just watching that first half, though, the Pacers completely outplayed the Bulls. It was just a matter of conceding way too many offensive rebounds, way too many of those 50-50 balls, and just some kind of freak stuff going on. But yeah, it it kind of felt to me like, man, they blew it. They should be up like 10 to 15 points right now, and instead they're down. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Not having... I, 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 like, this was weird for me, because looking on it was like, Okay, if certain things worked out a certain kind of way, sure. But on the other hand, it, I didn't want to say it was like an effort, but you had, I mean, Rodman played, what, for this game, I know I'm jumping ahead, 25, 27 minutes in this game, looking on it now, and he did not, I think he was like fourth for the Bulls, on, he had 27 minutes. He was fourth for the Bulls on rebounding. Yeah. Scotty Pippen led the way. Right behind him was Jordan and Longley, and then Robin. And you take that in response to, the Pacers, who Antonio Davis came up big with 10 boards, only 22 minutes, and then Dale Davis, and after that, nobody else on the Pacers got five. Right. It, uh, it, it'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring up um, uh, Miller's overall performance at the end, but uh, um, he, uh, he put up a goose egg in terms of rebounds in this game, and I know Miller is not known for his rebounding, but it's one of those things where, you know, you can't get a single rebound in a game seven. <laughs> Exactly, <laughs> and he played the most of any minute. He may play the most minutes of any pacer. Yeah. So you couldn't even walk into a rebound at that point. It is insane to be playing the most out of anyone who played on that Pacers team. He was the only one who didn't even get a rebound. And after Davis, I mean, no other pacer got more than five. So you're right. We got to talk about Miller a little bit after this. But in general, that was just crazy to think about. That listen, you know, noted rebounder, Hall of Fame rebounder, Dennis Rodman's there, and. You have people who, I don't want to say one and more, but Pippen and Jordan were relentless taking the glass. And that also corresponds with their horrific shooting just from the field and even uh, surprisingly from the line. Yeah, and uh, the you know speaking to, to Phil Jackson's greatness, you know you look at that first quarter and you think, oh man, starting Ku coach and watching how Dale Davis just punished the Bulls, that was a mistake. But instead of overreacting to that first quarter, he sticks to his guns, and, and Kukoc rewards him by playing a terrific third quarter. Really, uh, to me, was the MVP of the game for the Bulls. Without Kukoc's performance in the third, they lose this ball game. Um, but, you know, with Davis taking advantage of him on the block on the inside, uh, the third quarter was the exact opposite. Kukoc was taking advantage of Davis on the other end from the outside, and and Davis, you know, really made a lot of mistakes in that third quarter in terms of just, uh, even with the Bulls not having any threats near the near the hoop, he would just be straying away from Kukoc, and, and the Bulls made a bunch of simple passes, and Kukoc got wide-open looks. 
and then he started to get into a rhythm, and then once Davis finally started actually reacting to Kukoc, he was hitting difficult contested jumpers. Oh, yeah, he went alive in that third quarter. You said it, MVP of the game, 14 and third, what, 5 of 5, 3 of 3, like, like 3 of 3 from 3. I mean, this was where you're right. It all just paid off in a major way um, for, for not only Kukoc, but for Jackson for making the move. And you're right, once he got a couple jumpers in there, got his confidence, there was nothing Dale could do with him. I mean, there was nothing, and he led the way. I don't think any other any other bull, uh, aside from Jordan, scored more than a bucket or more than two points, aside from Kukoc, who led the way for Chicago and really got them in a game where not only were they sputtering, but also in a quarter where, aside from Kukoc, you weren't really getting a lot else. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Kukoc able to, to hit a bunch of shots to put the Bulls up. They were up 68-61 with with uh, 2:34 left in the in the third quarter, but uh, the the Pacers go on go on a crazy run uh, and uh, 11-0 run fueled by uh, the likes of, of Rick Smith and, and Jalen Rose and and the Bulls were even playing Judd Bushler at times and and he he was no match for Rose. Rose was able to drive right around him and and score on him. So the Pacers really flipped the game on its head there in the closing stages of the third into the fourth. They take a 72-69 lead uh, with, with 8.55 left, and the, the shooting struggles continued for Michael Jordan, who missed seven straight field goals uh, you know, in the, at, in the closing stages of the third into the fourth. Yeah, again, another rough, another rough performance. Just quarter, a uh, second half for him throughout this game. This was definitely a game that was not a shiny moment. Third quarter, one moment for five. Um, fourth quarter, two for seven. So in that miss, you're right, those seven straight missed shots was ugly. Um, and it was just hard generating points for him. But I compare that to um, his counterpart shooting guard who kind of disappeared. Um, third quarter, two of five. Uh, uh, two, uh, you know, made both his free throws for seven points. The fourth quarter, 0 oh, one. And that was it for one Reggie Miller. Yeah, um, and, and that's, I think, the big... Uh, the, the the big challenge with evaluating Miller in terms of his status among the all-time greats is, uh, you know, because he's not a terrific defender and because he's not an on-ball player, there were moments where he, uh, you know, was was kind of absent. He kind of disappears from games. And, and despite the fact that he, he put up a really good shooting line in this one and, and, and scored, I think, 20-plus points, yeah, there were uh, huge moments in this where it felt like, yeah, they... Uh, they could just use a bucket from Miller, where you know this is the this is Miller time, as a lot of the Pacers fans like to call it, and uh, he didn't show up. Um, and and yeah, the the Bulls just continued to attack the glass after MJ's seventh consecutive miss. He was able to get his own rebound and score, uh, and and the Bulls also down the down the the second half of the fourth quarter. They really started attacking Rick Smiths on the pick and roll. Obviously, Smiths at seven three was not a good mover, so they just kept going to that over and over again. And and despite Jordan struggling from the field, he was able to uh, to live at the line in the fourth quarter. Oh yeah, and that was really a big difference there too. You're right because when you're not being able to convert baskets at an efficient rate, he was able to get his hands on the ball on, on, on the ball. He's able to get to that free throw line even with a pedestrian ten to fifteen for him. Just getting there that many times just put pressure on the bases and doesn't let up and gets them in foul trouble into the bonus very quickly. And, yeah, and, again, it was just he had this uncanny ability of getting to the line as was. So much less now is, okay, well, listen, I don't have to focus to get there because it's, I'm having a hard time, you 
know, getting my jumper to fall, my legs aren't getting under me, it's hard to, to kind of convert baskets here. And so for it to be a concentrated weapon in this one was big. And when you don't have, aside from Smiths and some other key performances for the Pacers, you don't have your one guy, Miller, who, who, who a basket from would have been big, not only just from one of your bigger players, but just from being Reggie and how big he was to that team and how a couple of baskets from him and how he'd come through, you know, in game three and game four um, was big for them. It, it, it just... I don't know. It, it was just, I think, from an emotional standpoint, too, one that just didn't, it, it, it was it was found lacking and one that was kind of needed for them. Yeah, and, uh, you know, another podcast I listened to, uh, the uh, Zach Lowe with, with Steve Kerr, they talked about a key play in the fourth quarter. It was, a, it was a jump ball, which I thought was a questionable jump ball call because Jordan uh, had the ball, I believe, stripped, and Smith picked it up with both hands, and Jordan kind of reaches behind and puts one hand on the basketball for about one and a half seconds, probably at most, and Bavetta calls it a jump ball. Smith had ripped the ball away by the time the, the Bavetta had uh, actually raised his hand in the air to signal it. Uh, so questionable even the jump ball, but then it was it was Smith and MJ... And uh, they they talked on the the podcast Kerr and uh, and Lowe that basically Smiths always tapped the ball forward and uh, Pippen read it and was able to sneak in and get the ball and then that possession leads to after another offensive rebound leads to a Steve Kerr three to tie it at seventy seven with uh, basically six minutes left in the ball game but yeah that was uh, that was a pretty crucial play. And, and then, uh, you know, just a, a minute or so later, that's the play where Reggie Miller has a defensive rebound and would have been his one and only rebound of the game, but just bobbles it. Uh, and, and Pippen grabs it and it leads to uh, a Pippen jumper a little bit later in the possession. Um, the, the other thing that I thought was, was fascinating down the stretch of this Game 7 was, you know, you, you talk about Larry Bird and all of the great coaching decisions he made throughout this series, and one of the consistent ones was... Travis Best was the point guard that he went with down the stretch of these games. And instead, in, in Game 7, he opts for Mark Jackson. And uh, frankly, I thought that was a mistake. Yeah, it, it was weird. Uh, Travis Best had been coming through in the clutch. He gave a more a dynamic offensive um, ability that the Pacers could have used. Um, yeah, he, had to, you know, he pounded a little bit there, but I think having someone there was a jolt of energy for that Pacers team. And just beyond all that, it was one of their standard rotations around this time where especially up to this point, he was getting crunch time minutes in games, and he's performing well. I think the last three we've already covered, he had been giving, in one way or another, um, dividends um, just for the Pacers, either getting fouls or getting clutch baskets or whatever the case may be. And to have that was one that was, was odd. It was odd to be sure. Um, I remember thinking, wow, I think that you know he was okay, the vets, you know, get it. You know, all the, the standard coach lingo about going with the guys who got you there, it's game seven, whatever the case may be. But I think that that, was one that, in retrospect, he would have probably done different because it didn't work out the way it probably should have been. And, you know, just in general for this game, Mark Jackson was, I mean, largely a non-factor. I mean, his numbers for the game look decent. 11 points, uh, 4 rebounds, 6 assists. But if we're talking about uh, Miller time, winning time, whatever the case may be, the third quarter he did okay um, with 5 points, a, a rebound, and 2 assists. And the fourth quarter... Again, we talked about Miller playing nine minutes and, and, and giving a, 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 a offer with one assist and one steal. Jackson came in, played five minutes, and, and, and didn't give you anything. 
Yeah, and that, that turnover, he tried to throw an entry pass to Smith, and Harper just read it and stole it again. Uh, it, it was one of those where, oh, yeah, yeah the, the Bulls don't respect him as a shooter, so they can they can play the pass. Uh, and he had another, um, you know, the right after the turnover, he also had a possession where he doesn't box out Ron Harper. Harper gets the offensive rebound and, uh, you know, just runs out some more time off the clock. Uh, and... And uh, the, the, the other one with, with the Pacers, you know, again, not able to score towards the end of this game, but still just like a two-possession game most of the way down the stretch. Um, Jackson gets a rebound. He pushes the ball with 27.5 seconds left, and he just picks up his dribble at the top of the key with nowhere to go. And uh, the Bulls just start pressuring him, and, and he ends up throwing it to, to Derek McKee, who puts up a desperation three and, and, and misses the shot. But it's another a perfect example of like, well, Travis Best isn't just picking up his dribble at the three-point line with without any idea of what he's doing. He's going to be being aggressive and attacking the basket and making something happen. And and that was what was frustrating watching Jackson down the stretch is just, you know, his uh, and and why I think Best was the better option was that uh, Jackson just was uh, was not doing much, especially against those Bulls lineups that that had Harper at the point where he had nowhere to go in terms of his, his post-up play. Yeah, it just wasn't there. You're right. Like, the matchup skills, I get that Jackson was someone to settle the team, you know, get them into their offense. He was their emotional linchpin. I get all of that. However, what he brought to the table wasn't being optimized against this Bulls team, and the weaknesses were being used. I mean, from game one, he was being swallowed up. He had his moments, but for the most part, what best brought you, was yes a different skill set in some ways he wasn't um um Jackson in terms of getting you know the team involved being that steady floor presence but he was someone that his skills getting to the line you know relentless on the offensive end being a water bug kind of point guard there would have been helpful if used even more and especially at this point of the series and this point of the game you were lacking that Miller wasn't giving you that Smiths had been kind of running it all this time and yeah you had other players step up but you needed someone to kind of give you anything from the perimeter and that would have been great there to have had you know Travis Best do it for you um or even if Jalen Rose had stepped up a little bit more but it would have been different just having Best there and the fact that he wasn't able to get that time was I mean they kind of split it but it even I mean okay Best technically played more minutes in the fourth than Jackson I think it was just where those minutes were and also the fact that by that point the rhythm rotation was off you know and those things matter they just do yeah, it was uh, it was questionable, and I also question, you know, as good as Smith was offensively, I thought, especially in that fourth quarter, he was getting attacked relentlessly, and that was the only way the Bulls were were generating offense was attacking him and, and getting to the free throw line. Uh, so a couple of decisions there, although I thought Bird had a good coaching series, I thought he maybe uh, didn't perform at his best in in Game Seven, unfortunately. But yeah, you look at the the the, the Bulls ended up winning. 88-83, and you look at the offensive rebounding numbers, Chicago with 22 offensive rebounds to the Pacers, 4, and the Bulls uh, ended up with 20 more shot attempts, and, and despite shooting about 10% worse from the field, able to get the win. Yeah, it was one of those gritty, knockout, drag-out games that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like who's left standing. Um, and later on, I know the talk would be about home court, and I know Scotty Pippen comments on how the home court team won every game in this series, and it just so happened in Chicago, and Pippen was like, hey, maybe, you know, if the Pacers had home court, it would end differently, but we'll never know. All we can take is what happened in front of us, and you're right, down in that final game, the Pacers brought a lot. Um, a curious disappearance from Miller, 
and some questionable coaching decisions from the then rookie coach Larry Bird. But for the most part, the Bulls were relentless, and you know they they got it where it counted, and they did just enough to pull off this game in a game where you know clearly uh, Jordan Pippen had their worst offensive performances from the series, in my opinion. Yeah, and it was uh, it was a pretty great defensive game. You know, uh, I think the the teams played reasonably well. I can't remember a lot of like wide open shots that uh, that Jordan was missing and that when or, or Pippen, uh, just really solid defense from from both squads. But I wanted to just get your quick take on you know you talk about the the what ifs and and this Pacers team coming so close to to beating the Bulls and and making the finals. What do you think about the, the the matchup with the Pacers and and the Jazz? And one of the things that I think would would have been fascinating is you know Mark Jackson having a kind of a, a nightmare matchup against what the Bulls offered from a roster perspective. I think it would have been pretty great in terms of uh, you know he would have gotten to back down the likes of uh, of Jeff Hornacek and John Stockton and Howard Isley in the next round if they if they advance. Oh, yeah. No, this would have been a per- you're right. I- he would have loved it, for one. That would have been a perfect matchup for him to just go to work on these undersized aging guards um, in, in, in uh, Stockton and Hornacek. And then I have Howard Isley off the bench. Another guy I would think of as uh, we talked about this a while now, Travis Best, would have had some fun over here. Um, just being able to run and, and kind of get in the lane. And another matchup for me I would have th- thought was interesting was uh, the Davis brothers against Carl Malone. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the I think the Pacers match up really well. Uh, would have matched up really well in in that series, and and yeah, those those Davis brothers are strong men. They could have, uh, I think, they could have reasonably held their own against Malone. Yeah, I think the bench for the Pacers could have shined through even more. Jalen Rose might have went off more, in my opinion. Rick Smith would have probably had a good series. Uh, you know, I, I, I imagine that he'd have had. Uh, Pretty easy work with Greg Ostertag, uh, Ostertag, who's good, uh, defensively solid, but I think that would have been interesting. Reggie Miller would have had some more easy looks because you're not playing against the lockdown uh, perimeter guys of, of, of Jordan or Harp or Pippen. You know, you have the Hornacek and a Hornacek and a Russell. A Russell. Oh, Russell would have been interesting. I will give that. I think I don't think that he would have like taken him out entirely, but I think that that would have been a nice kind of back and forth there for sure. But, um, yeah, I, I would definitely give the Pacers the edge in that matchup against Utah over uh, a series like that. I just think that down the stretch, I think Utah would have had an interesting time matching up. Um, and, yeah, you talk about Carl Malone and, and, the, and the Stockton pick and roll and, and the different players who kind of got Utah to where they were. But at the same time, it definitely would have been interesting to kind of see how that would have worked, especially having put aside the toughest competition in Chicago. Right, yeah, the this Pacers team – was 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 really darn good, and it was unfortunate that uh, that Miller wasn't at a hundred percent for for a decent chunk of the series. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that was that was a heck of a lot of fun to to watch. And did you have any other stray thoughts about the series or, or players in general before we wrap up? I, I kind of just lamented that this was Indiana's really one and only chance to really get it. You know, yeah. uh, looking at this team, I got a lot more respect for them. Maybe it was because the last dance and just watching a lot of Jordan Bulls in general of this era, but I kind of already, not that you already knew everything there was to know about this team, but I kind of feel like I knew uh, Chicago through and through at this point, but it was interesting to see Indiana, and players I knew was there, and players that I kind of forgot about, and realized that, wow, by the time, you know, they make it to the NBA Finals, you have a team that's going to be a little bit different. I mean, Jalen Rose at this point was in his prime, but Dale Davis is already 30, uh, Miller and Jackson were already 34. Smith was 33 and entering his end. 
Travis Best was in his prime, but then you had, you know, Sam Perkins, Derek McKee, older guys, Chris Mullen, 36, and then young guys who would be interesting for the next great, you know, decent iteration of uh, the Pacers, like uh, Al Harrington and Austin uh, Crochet and guys like that, but they, they, it was just, their time was kind of past at that point, you could tell. And they were going against a Lakers team where, as interesting a matchup as the Jazz Pacers would have been to me, you kind of knew going in. And the Pacers, because they were a veteran team and kept it close, that they were in it. But the Lakers team was just totally just better, you know? And so looking at this and going, wow, this was really their one kind of shot. Although it would be interesting to kind of look back on the 2000 NBA Finals once one day. But just looking at it and going, wow, this was it. And they, they kind of wouldn't get a crack this close at it again. It was kind of sad because I, I really grew to like this team watching it. And I feel like you're right. It's just a shame Miller wasn't 100% because, you know, who knows how that would have turned out. Yep, and uh, it just goes to show you as well that despite the fact that that 2000 team advanced to the finals, yeah, I agree with you that the, the 98 team that lost in the in the conference finals was the better basketball team, and I think by a significant margin. Um, so, but, but yeah, I agree with you. It was really fun to watch, and it honestly makes me want to watch a, a, another a series with, with Reggie Miller where he was, uh, you know, healthy for, for the entire time because he, he is a fun guy to watch. Uh, watch play, but uh, Corbin, this was this was a heck of a lot of fun going through this, and uh, thanks so much for for uh, doing the tremendous amount of prep that it takes to do these episodes, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, you, you know I love it, Garrett. Thanks for having me. As always, man, this is this is fun. This was a fun little uh, trip down memory lane, I guess. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host, Corbin Ford, on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. Uh, Corbin also is the site expert for the fan-sided website Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns. So you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for for listening and have a great rest of your day. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.